This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Vanity Fair. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. I am delighted and proud to introduce him as Academy Award winner. And the Oscar goes to. And the Oscar goes to. The winner, it's a tie. And any little girl who's, who's practicing their speech on the telly, you never know. Mom, I just want an Oscar. I am Katie Rich. I'm here with Richard Lawson. Hello. With David Canfield. Hello. And with Rebecca Ford. Hey. This is the last time we'll be recording together in 2023. As I think we've said before, we're going to take a week off from the roundtable chats next week. We will have some interviews to share. Um, But it seems like a great time to close out the year as the industry kind of winds down. And we got a lot of great questions from you guys, our listeners. Really cannot overstate how excellent these questions are. You guys are all (laughs) really smart and really paying attention to the season. And also just like giving us helpful feedback, like attaching uh, movie names with actor names when we talk about them, which is something we should always remember. Um, So we were really just going to dive into the mailbag and uh, talk about a lot of stuff about this season. And I wanted to start with a specific question from Christopher, because also um, The Color Purple will be out on Christmas. The review embargo on that is lifting at long last. We can talk about it in a little bit more detail. And uh, maybe from the angle that Christopher suggested, uh, he said, I think wrote this in right after the Golden Globe nominations. I am sure I won't be the only one asking this, but how in trouble is the color purple? Is something like May, December or the zone of interest poised to take its spot in the best picture 10? Um, mm. I think this is something we addressed to some extent when the Globe nominations came out. Um, but I think we're all also kind of waiting to see how the color purple does when it opens next week. Um, Richard, are you reviewing it? Do you want to weigh in on the the critical response there? Katie, my review just posted nine minutes ago. I mean, oh, my God. I'm so sorry. I haven't read it yet. <laughs> how dare you? <laughs> so embarrassing. Uh, no, it's fine. It's it's a tough movie to kind of approach because it really does feel sort of supplemental to people who are already fans of the novel or the first film or the stage musical. As a standalone movie, it's not quite as robust as I was hoping, but the performances are really good. And I thought that that would propel it easily into a Golden Globe musical comedy uh, nomination, which it did not get. So I understand Christopher being like, okay, that's a really bad bellwether, right? Like, that's a big bad indication. But I don't know. I think The Color Purple might just need more time, um, as we've talked about extensively on this podcast this season. This is a very crowded time of year. Um, You know, it would be normally, but this year especially. So I don't know. I think that maybe with a little more time to breathe and, you know, people get to it on the screener pile. um, I don't know. I, I don't know that I would put Color Purple in a best picture race at the moment but like i think acting wise and maybe some other technical stuff like 
I don't know. It's not out for the count at all. Yeah, I do think just the screenings I've been to, the reaction is so intensely positive. Um, But obviously, you know, those early screenings are people who have a... Don't let them fool you. ...a strong interest (laughs) in the film. But I do think we're going to have to wait till after the holidays to really decide how its chances are in Best Picture because... I think there is a chance for a, a late surge here with this film. Um, I agree acting is is more likely, but I wouldn't call it out for the count at all yet. Yeah, it's, it's kind of in a unique position because of the box office. I don't really have much of a sense of how well it's going to do, how well people are expecting it to do. Um, obviously, Wonka is a musical and that did quite well. So there are signs for hope and it's such a, you know, beloved property. But I I do agree with Richard. And I think that that's probably what's holding it back is this feeling of the film not necessarily adding a ton to people who already love and know The Color Purple, which are many, many people. And it just feels like it, it was very much in that conversation when the screenings first started. And as these, you know, other groups have started putting out nominations lists and winners lists, it suddenly feels like it's on the outside looking in for those last one or two spots. And then I think about like what the Academy tends to do with those last one or two slots. And it's, it's not usually a movie like the color purple. It's usually something a little bit artier and smaller, at least of late. So I, I don't know. I mean, it, 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 it does have that potential to break out and be very firmly a part of that mix again. But as of now, I would say I'm not too confident in it making Best Picture, to be honest. But I think it's a strong player in the Ensemble SAG Award. Yes. Um, yeah. You know? yeah. But they tend to always nominate one movie there that doesn't go on to Best Picture. Right. Like a House of Gucci or um, well, House of Ma Gucci. Rainey. Holy moly. Well, no, House of Gucci <laughs> did win Best Picture. So I think, and Lady Gaga won Best yeah, Actress. Yeah, check your files. <laughs> I think I'm also becoming more and more skeptical of the idea of a late breaking surge. Like I think we've talked yes. you know a lot about how the million dollar baby model kind of hasn't really worked again. And honestly, I keep thinking of The Greatest Showman, which became such a big hit after it opened at Christmas, but was a slow building thing. And by the time the Oscars happened, it's like, oh, why didn't that get like four nominations? But it just didn't have time to make that case. And The Color Purple could very well be a hit, but maybe follow the same thing of just not having time to get in before Oscar nomination voting ends on January 16th. And David, you brought up the idea of something smaller and artier, and that's why I thought Christopher mentioning the zone of interest was kind of particularly dead on. That feels like exactly the model of a of a sneaking in Best Picture nominee that the um, Academy has preferred in recent years. Yeah, I think it really helps that that movie has A24 behind it. Um, I've definitely said on this podcast before that when I saw it, I was both completely blown away by it and far more concerned and skeptical about its, you know, potential as a best picture player, especially. Um, So I was definitely wondering, and I have been wondering how it would fare as more of these movies came out. Uh, And yeah, it does seem to be standing very well against a movie like The Color Purple. And those are the kinds of movies that it would have to overtake. The Zone of Interest is uh, uniquely positioned in that it kind of came in out of Cannes as such a strong player. And I feel like of the international titles, Anatomy of a Fall has kind of solidified its place in the race. Mm -hmm. And Zone of Interest has just sort of hummed along and it's still, you know, greatly admired. It did pretty well in specialty release. Um, I I think that just it makes a little bit more sense in terms of a 2023 Academy than The Color Purple. 
but it also feels like a movie that you know it's it's hard to see it being an Oscar nominee if you watch it uh, just because it's 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 a little bit bolder than where that race tends to go. So I'm still of two minds about it. Oh, would you have said the same thing about Triangle of Sadness though before it? Whoops, it's the Best Picture nominee. Maybe, but Triangle of Sadness is highly chaotically entertaining, whereas Zone of Interest is not. kind of <laughs> deliberately not. Yeah. <laughs> it's sort of the opposite in terms of how you draw in a voter. Yeah. But we had we had talked um, a couple weeks ago, or I had said that I was sort of worried about that zone of interest in particular falling through the cracks of screening fatigue and just you know oh, I have I have so many things to go to and I just one one thing has to go you know I have to toss out and it's going to be the zone of interest screening because oh it's going to be really difficult sit and you know whatever but like now that we're entering a period of you know people being off work for holidays I mean anecdotally it's the number one requested screener for my family. And I was like, really? Of all the things, that's the number one? And they said, yep. Focus group of three. That tells us something. (laughs) Yeah. So I wonder now if people will have a little time where they're not, you know, there there aren't as many events between Christmas and New Year. Like, maybe they can just really sit with that movie. And that's when it picks up the momentum that it right now seems to kind of not have. Or at least that momentum is in some some doubt. One thing I will say is that... um, with both Triangle of Sadness and All Quiet on the Western Front last year, where they really showed up was the BAFTA nominations, mm. BAFTA long lists. And Ooh. so I think for both that, Anatomy of Fall, in addition to like in All of the Strangers, that's really where those movies are going to have to put up big showings. And Glazers are Brit, so maybe that helps him at the BAFTAs. Yeah, definitely. Do we know when the BAFTA long lists are coming? Right after the new year. Ah, okay, see. This is the calendar thing I always need to keep an eye on. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, the New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for the New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. To move on to the questions, I uh, need to briefly acknowledge this one from Jason, who asks, what is Katie's favorite moment or song in Wonka, and how many times has she watched the screener with her kids already? Uh, <laughs> by Scrub Scrub, I think, is the best song. Richard, you can tell me, uh, as my fellow Wonka uh, stan, if you have another pick. Um, I haven't watched the screener as much as I would want, because I have two kids, one of whom wants to watch Wonka and one of whom doesn't. This is the real peril oh, of wow. um, having names, Katie. <laughs> I, I, know, I really brother against brother. <laughs> Uh, Richard, do you have another song that you would single out for Wonka? I don't know the name of it, but the where he sings, where he rhymes chocolate with pocolate and <laughs> I socolate. <laughs> That's the opening one, right? It's the, the second song. It's when oh, he's okay. like advertising his wares or whatever to, right. to the people of this strange city. Um, that one I think is really cute. Um, but Scrub Scrub is is also very good. I can't wait to watch Wonka again. But there's also the song that he sings with the little girl. Um, where they're like floating above the city yeah, on the that's balloons. A good one. That's that made that's the first 
point in the movie where I cried and it was not the last. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think as the holidays go on and everyone becomes more emotionally vulnerable, uh, maybe Wonka will really start hitting <laughs> hitting everyone where it hurts. Weeping under the Christmas tree, <laughs> <laughs> singing Pocalypse to themselves. No, no, that's my holiday tradition. Okay, uh, we have a, a couple of listener questions that are like on a similar bent that I'm going to group together, but I'm going to take part of one from Akib, who just kind of made a good, what I thought was a good point. Um, I wanted to say that I feel this has been a really good movie year. I've seen tons of Best Picture lineups with a variety of 10 movies, and for the most part, I look at them and I see that I really like these movies, which is something you really can't say about recent years. Um, I really agree as I kind of put together what like a potential Best Picture 10 would be of all the possibilities. There's like not a bad movie in there. And I think for me personally, and everyone might have their own opinion, I think 2017 was the last time that happened, that there was just like an all hits, no skips, best picture lineup. And I think that speaks really well to what this year's film lineup has been. You guys with me? Yeah, I've yep. been saying that. I, f- I feel like I've had that conversation a million times recently because it it is such a, a wonderful and like varied group, you know? And I think a lot of us on this podcast um, have favorites that are similar, but I agree that there's at least 10 wonderful films this year, which is pretty great. Yeah, I think a year where you have something as massive as Barbie or Oppenheimer going toe to toe in some ways with like past lives and May, December. And like, you know, I just think that the the, the range of, of scale is so um, interesting this year. Um, it's hard for me to see that up close. And I'm sure it is for you three as well, like, because you're just sort of in it and it's work and you start, I mean, I speak i'll speak for myself i start to resent every movie because i'm just like <laughs> like i'm sick of these but yes from from a more considered distance it's like oh yeah this is really good it just takes time i think for me to realize that and that's that's kind of what's happening now it's like looking back at a festival lineup and being like whoa that was actually really good you know yeah um it just you don't i don't know it in october but now i'm starting to appreciate um the varied splendor of this year there were quite a few um I mean, really bombs around fall festival season last year, like Bardo and The Sun, Lest We Forget, and White Noise. Movies just really that went nowhere and that landed as pretty big disappointments. Your anti-Venice bias is showing, David. (laughs) (laughs) I think we must blame the program on that one. Um, But this year, there really wasn't any of that. I mean, there were, you know, everyone had favorites um, and maybe movies that didn't land as strongly for them personally, but the reception of... I mean, I just remember being in Telluride, and there were so many great movies getting such a um, wide, you know, range of ecstatic reactions. Mm-hmm. And I think that that was very different from last year, where you had movies like Women Talking and Tar um, finding a lot of admiration and and affection in certain corners. But that was kind of where it ended. Um, so this that that's where I really noticed it. It also just feels like every year there's been a lot of movies that we really love and have a lot of critical acclaim and get it in there. But there's always just like one or two kind of lingering around where you're like, okay, this is not for me. But like there's nothing I can do to stand between Green Book getting a Best Picture nomination. (laughs) Um, And this year there just isn't one of those. Like, you know, I think, we, you know, you kind of keep waiting. You're like, okay, what's on the horizon? Like, is the Iron Claw going to be some disaster that still gets a ton of Oscar nominations? And it just hasn't happened. Everything has really flourished on its own terms, um, which is just wonderful to see. I was kind of hoping for some kind of collateral beauty or cats or something. (laughs) And I think we kind of thought that was going to be Wonka. Yeah. Not that that Wonka was a major awards, you know, it wasn't positioned for awards, but like, but Wonka turned out to be good. So. Yeah. They just, that trailer gave us 
a little hope that it was going to be a car wreck, but yeah, I pulled it off. <laughs> Stop hoping for car wrecks. We don't want things to fail, but it can be fun. There, were, I, I guess. I guess my point is, what will be the rowdy screenings of February? You know, like there Ooh. just there is not a movie that fits that bill. It's just going to be Barbie again. Just keep playing Barbie. <laughs> All the Barbie haters billion. will go and yell at it. <laughs> Um, so, okay, so the other half of Akeeb's question was also something similar to what Rob asked. And both of them kind of cited Paul Meskel and After Sun specifically as someone who you're like, oh, man, I really want them to get nominated. But like, ah, it'll never happen. Um, and, you know, he brings up Brian Tyree Henry and Causeway or um, Rob kind of brought up Renee Zellweger and Bridget Jones or something feels so unlikely that talking about the unlikeliness is what makes it actually a nominee. Um, but, you know, I think, David, you brought up Brian Tyree Henry and Causeway recently. Like, is there something that feels like that? that like we're not predicting hasn't shown up on these lists that could just reemerge kind of right about the right moment, maybe with the SAG nomination, maybe just with the Oscars. Like what would you pin some hope on there? Um, I mean, a, a, a month ago I would have said Charles Melton. Yeah. But now that's. <laughs> you, you were so, cor- so, so correct that it's now obvious. <laughs> People like Richard have done the good work of making it so I don't have to say that uh, because he is definitely in that mix much more firmly now. I mean, I don't know. It's 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 such a mystery when especially something like that happens. I think with Paul Meskel, there was such a groundswell for the movie and it did do really well with the BAFTAs again. And um, it just had this steady stream of really passionate buzz behind it. With Brian Tyree Henry, um, I was so thrilled by that nomination in part because it really came out of nowhere. Yeah. I mean, he's amazing in the movie and absolutely deserved it, but the movie was very quiet. It premiered in Toronto to very little attention. Uh, Jennifer Lawrence's campaign didn't really go anywhere. I just didn't really feel like there was much, you know, possibility there. So, it just happens every once in a while. And I think I brought him up in the context of Rachel McAdams, who mm-hmm. obviously has very different standing in the industry. And I think a key difference is Brian Terry Henry did a lot of campaigning for Causeway, whereas Rachel McAdams has not really done anything for either God, it's me, Margaret. But it does feel like the performance in a movie that's not likely to show up anywhere else, um, that's just a little bit outside of the general conversation, that there's a ton of love for that is undeniably great and worthy to anyone who's seen it. Um, And that comes from an actor who's greatly respected. I mean, she was nominated for Spotlight. I think I like her a lot in Spotlight. I think this would be a far more, you know, exciting nomination for her. Um, So that's one that comes to mind. I'm not, I I don't know. It's just, it's a strange year where it always feels like things have solidified, even though they, they haven't. I think that we could keep an eye out for America Ferrara, uh, for Barbie, I have some weird sense that just jumped into my head that like, what if Matt Damon gets a supporting actor nomination for Oppenheimer? Uh-huh, you know, uh-huh. um, I don't know. I I think that there are a couple people lurking out there. Um, Franz Rogowski won at New York Film Critics Circle. People mm-hmm. like that movie. Mm-hmm. It was kind of a little indie hit in the summer. Like, I, I don't know, maybe I, that's not going to happen. But like, <laughs> but I don't know. I think America for, for Barbie is like the one I would put if I was going to take a risky bet, that's that's where I would go. It's tough because the the listener examples are are, are performances from films that didn't get nominated anywhere else. Like I could right. see America yeah. Forever for sure because of the Barbie like uh, momentum and how many other nominations it's probably going to get. But it's hard to find an example of an actor this year from a movie that's probably not going to be anywhere else and. 
that could make it through. I I I have Gael Garcia Bernal on the mind right now, uh, and obviously yeah. I, I think I'm. It's more of a me personally being a little bummed he's not more in the conversation because I think his performance in Cassandro is um, definitely worth being in this conversation. Yeah. I I think that's a stretch because I don't hear people talking about it in in the way we did with something like Paul Mescal last year, but. Um, I don't, my, my other sort of question mark is Barry Keoghan, because I think even people who are mixed on that, on Saltburn can acknowledge that performance is very, very special. And obviously he's been nominated before, but again, you look at these categories and they're so crowded already. It just feels like you, I can't talk myself into any of these surprise nominations, uh, having any room. I think there are, there's a number in supporting actor too, but it's just, so stacked. And now that you also have Charles Milton as the kind of new face of that mix, it's like, how is there room for a Glenn Howerton who has been everywhere for Blackberry and has gotten some attention? Or somebody like Peter Sarsgaard for Memory, who Mm -hmm. has been getting a really kind of Andrea Riseborough-esque tinted uh, push of, you know, a long respected actor finally with a great role. Uh, and he's been all around um, L.A. and New York with the movie Memory. And Jessica Chastain is basically campaigning on his behalf. <laughs> She's good at that. She's very good at that. So, I mean, theoretically, I could see that happening. But it's just like, it's just so hard to imagine when you're talking about Robert Denny Jr., Ryan Gosling, Robert De Niro, Mark Ruffalo, Willem Dafoe, yeah. and Charles Melton. And that's just six. And then you also have people like Sterling K. Brown. And I could go on and on. I mean, it's... It's so stacked with big names from big contenders that it's 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 tricky. Um, but you always hope to see them, and usually the Academy does at least throw one in. So, yeah. well, I'm was, not ruling it out. I think it's telling that when we first started this, we kind of went to America Ferrera and Rachel McAdams because supporting actress has felt like the, yeah. the fuzziest. And I was going to throw out Julia Binoche, who was on this podcast very recently. You talked to her, David. I won't tell her that you didn't bring her up, but uh, (laughs) she's a very famous Oscar surprise when she won Supporting Actress, uh, beating out Lauren Bacall. And that's a movie that people love and I really think will be at the top of screener piles over Christmas, like certainly at the top of mine. Um, Mm -hmm. So she might be someone to keep an eye on for the taste of things, I should say. There's also, you know, in at the Golden Globes, again, very different awards body, but like Supporting Actor, those categories are not, they're not split. It's, all it's dramedy, comedy, drama, comedy, musical, everything together. And of the six, Rosamund Pike is in there for Saltburn. Yeah. And she is really good in that movie. And a lot of people have seen that movie. Um, and yes, it's not that awardsy, maybe in the grander scheme of things, but like um, maybe she's in the mix too. Cause like Brian Tyree Henry had gotten two nominations before this somewhat surprise Oscar nomination. He was at Spirits, he was at Critics' Choice. Rosamund Pike has one nomination so far. Like, you know, there is precedent, I guess. But I think you're right, Katie, that like, maybe Binoche is the better pick there because that movie um, appeals, um, let's say, age-wise to a demographic that's well-represented <laughs> in the Academy. Are you calling me old because I want to see this movie? No, no, I'm saying we're old souls that people in the Academy are genuinely old. <laughs> I kind of love that one. I think she's yeah, a really a good, good pick for that. I mean, she's a lead, but whatever. <laughs> well, talk to Julianne Moore, also in Supporting Actress, and see how that goes. Um I, while we're talking about acting categories and what what there's room for, there's a question from Austin about um, someone dear to our hearts. Um, given the recent nominations announced from Golden Globes and Critics' Choice, what do you think are Andrew Scott's chances for an Oscar nom? Um, David, I feel like this one's hitting you kind of personally. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever do you mean? Um, yeah, I think, again, BAFTA. Like, that's kind of a make or break. 
He would yeah. have to get in there. That doesn't mean he gets in at the Oscars, but it's kind of like where Paul Mescal was for After Sun last year. It's just absolutely will need to happen, and the movie will need to perform well there overall. I really do think he's in it. The movie is completely is playing the gangbusters in the UK, which is, you know, makes a big difference with Oscar nominations. And he's in a different kind of category in this race, which is very top heavy again. But because you have names like Cooper Giamatti, DiCaprio up top, um, I could see room for more than one of a Jeffrey Wright, Coleman Domingo, Andrew Scott to find their way in. Um, we just have to see how it shakes out. But I, I don't think he's out of it at all. Um, he's definitely got a climb. But I just don't know who you kick out of Best Actor. If you look, I'm looking at Gold Derby, Killian Murphy, Bradley Cooper, Paul Giamatti, Leonardo DiCaprio, Jeffrey Wright in order. I know that, David, you've kind of pointed out that American Fiction has done well with nominations, but not like a runaway huge hit. But I still find it really hard to break up that five. I think DiCaprio could miss. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, I, I, I think that DiCaprio's the swing there. Because this happened getting, for him before. He yeah. didn't get nominated for, was it Don't Look Up? Or there's something more surprising yeah, don't than look that. Up. And yeah, Titanic. But, well, yeah, yeah. That's got a different era. Not, not Leo. Yeah. People thought he would fall off for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but he did make it through. But I, I think that there is that feeling around him of, uh, especially now that he has won, uh, and the campaign is not centered on him at all. And I think he's really, it's one of his best performances, but it, it seemed like a bit of a divisive performance from what I could tell. I don't know. I, I could just, I could very easily see him missing. I mean, just as much as I could see him making it in, but he would be the one I would say that is vulnerable of that, of He's that top five. Also playing such a villain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, yeah. Like that. I think there is a bit, especially with that movie and like the way that movie's spoken about. And, you know, I just feel like maybe people are, are going to be hesitant to, to like reward in some senses that character. I know that's not actually what the award is and villains should be able to win Oscars. Um, like the Clown Prince of Crime did. Um, but, you know. I'd also, I would like to renew the conversation around Coleman Domingo a bit. Uh, I did a Q&A with him, and I've done quite a few this season, and that one, I have to say, played pretty spectacularly. There was loud applause after every answer. He is unbelievably good in a room, unbelievably charming, unbelievably sincere, um, and really connects with everyone who is there. Um, and there is a real narrative that he is selling really well, in addition to uh, the performance at Rustin speaking for itself. So he's in the mix too. And out of that seven, I don't really know how you get to five, but you will. And I, I'm not ready to count any of those guys out because it does feel like each of them has a really compelling way in. I can already see us writing the, the the snub entry for one of these nominations. There's a snub. There's a there's there one to two be. snubs in yes. this category. Yeah. Well, we have a question kind of just right parallel in this from Luke about Carrie Mulligan. Um, Luke writes, I sort of feel like Lily Gladstone and Emma Stone will split their votes because of some interesting factors. People's reservations with Killers of the Flower Moon. Emma Stone won just a few years ago. And I feel like Mulligan could swoop in and take it. It seems like Bradley Cooper in the movie might be pushing the narrative in her direction, too, Um, which is interesting. You think about, you know, Lily Gladstone having a Leonardo DiCaprio campaign for her. I think it is similar with Carrie Mulligan. Um, Looking at Best Actress, it's not quite the same kind of up as best actor of getting seven down to five. There's some interesting fringe cases. I do think Carrie Mulligan will get nominated uh, on Gold Derby. She's right below Emma Stone and Lily Gladstone. Um, but what do you think about that scenario for a win? 
I, I think it's possible. I think uh, I feel like Emma Stone is really, really strong. Um, I don't I don't I don't know if people view it as the same like, well, she's already got one kind of situation because that performance is just so undeniable. But also and also Lily Gladstone has a very strong narrative. So to me, I mean, I think all three of them are are, are locked as nominees. But um, I, yeah, I, I think it's sort of we have to wait and see what happens, especially with Carrie in phase two and how well Maestro does overall. And despite what Bradley Cooper has done to, you know, he made her first build, like, you know, he really tried to make Felicia Montalegre like as much of a lead of that film as Lenny Bernstein doesn't quite succeed. I mean, it is the Lenny show and it is Bradley Cooper's show, and Carrie Mulligan's really good in it, but I just think that she's too much in the shadow of this huge thing that's not just a big performance from Bradley Cooper, but direction and writing and, like, you know, mm-hmm. conducting. And um, I just feel like whatever effort has been made to sort of center Carrie Mulligan more in the narrative of that movie, it hasn't quite worked. By huge thing, you mean the nose, Richard. Is that what you <laughs> meant? <by huge> thing? <laughs> Why do you think it hasn't worked when the Lily Gladstone centering, I, would, I think, really has? Even though she's in it less than Carrie is in my mm, Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's because of what Flower Moon's about, you know? Yeah. And, and uh, there is a sort of a push to really center the narrative of Lily Gladstone's character and all, her family and everything. And I, and I think that it, that's, there's less of a political urgency to pointing to Felicia Montalegre. Perhaps if Maestro had put in her political activities, her, you know, the Black Panther Party she hosted, all that stuff, and made, her, you know, made that part of her life more of the story, maybe we'd be, you know, speaking about it differently. But that's not what happened. It, it just also feels like since the strike ended, um, because before the strike, there was a very conscious, clear effort to make it seem like it was her movie. Yeah. Um, and those of us who had seen it in advance, I don't think we're quite convinced of that, even though I think she's it's she's amazing in it um, and deserves to be in the conversation. But once the strike ended and you have Bradley Cooper going on, you know, CBS Sunday morning or doing these panels with Steven Spielberg and, and every other famous director alive, um, and he's has so much to talk about, about the performance, the preparation for the direction, the preparation for the conducting, it's it's incredibly difficult to not make it about that, even if you did have a little bit more affiliation there, because I think he does give her the movie in that last act in a lot of ways. It's just very hard to make the campaign about her when he's as present as he is. And frankly, when he has a slightly clearer path to win than she does, which I think is kind of the underlying sentiment of how the rate these two respective campaigns candidacies have shaken out is he has a way he has a way into best actor in a way i don't think she has a way into best actress at this point to me mm. it feels I, I don't i don't see gladstone and emma stone splitting i think that their the appeals of those movies and those performances are pretty distinctive actually so i i think they're pretty high up top and i would put carrie mulligan you know firmly like rebecca said in the nominations you know, circle, but I don't know if she's in that top tier yet. Yeah. I mean, at this point, it feels like a two person race for that win to me. I would even say like someone like Sandra Huller is, is rising a little bit faster. Mm. Um, if in there is, we have a question that I want to get to about, uh, international contenders. So I'll save that, that spiel, but, um, she's an interesting position too. 
I was going to ask you guys how, so if we accept Stone, Gladstone, and Mulligan as the top three in actress, how would you round out that category? I think it's really hard to figure out what combination of people. Like, you look on the Gold Derby rankings, like Annette Bening is in eighth place, which seems crazy, um, mm-hmm. given, you know, everything around her in Nyad. You've got Natalie Portman, you've got Greta Lee, you've got Fantasia Barino, you've got Margot Robbie, Sandra Huller. I can't, I, I'm rooting really hard for Margot Robbie, as I think I've said, but like, I can't really decide what an obvious Best Actress 5 would look like quite different from actor right because yeah. there are so many possibilities um which could lead to a really chaotic and i mean god last year what can we say about this category uh that ended up with both anna de armas andrea and andrea riseborough yeah. which we were not we were not saying in december absolutely so no one wants to make their best actress five before i move on my five would be those three and Huler and benning right now i mm-hmm. think that that checks all of the checks the most academy boxes but that's I feel pretty good about Sandra Huller, to be honest with you. I just think that the Academy is enough of a shape where it would be a pretty big snob if she didn't make it in, honestly. But it's just hard to tell where a movie like Nyad is when it kind of came and went during the strike. Annette Benning is in Australia filming a new show right now. Um, and it's hard to know if it'll be able to stick around. Um, and then on the other hand, whether Margot Robbie stands out as a performer enough for voters, uh, even as we know Barbie will be embraced elsewhere. It's really hard to say. Well, she's not in Australia yet. She's swimming. She's she's almost there. <laughs> We're publishing on Thursday, <laughs> Richard. I think she's fish. getting there Thursday morning. <laughs> <laughs> she's set to make landfall <laughs> by Thursday. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. Uh, David, let's talk about the international performances question you mentioned, which I agree is really interesting. It's from Callahan, who says, do you all think that at a certain point, acting performances from non-English language films would be more regularly nominated or at least in the conversation of being serious contenders to be nominated? And this example is fascinating. Sakura Ando, who plays the neighbor in Godzilla Minus One, delivers in every scene she is in and is the emotional focal point in all her scenes. I think she should be talked about for the fifth slot in Best Supporting Actress because without her, the movie does not land in the same way. I've not seen Godzilla Minus One. This is maybe <laughs> makes me the most want to see it of anything I've heard yeah. about it. Has anybody else seen it? No. I've, I'm, I really want to. Um, but it's interesting. Sakura Ando is a great actor and also has the mm-hmm. uh, Koreeda film Monster out this year. Oh. And she's really good in that, too. So she she's got having a good year. But no, Godzilla Minus One is the movie I might sneak off and see with my partner when my, my parents and sister <laughs> are watching Zone of Interest. <laughs> <laughs> But no, I think that's a really interesting question, and I would love to see that happen more. It's been the the Academy's been a bit better about it in in recent years, but in a case of a movie like that, there is absolutely no campaigning done for that, you know. And it's not on the radar in that way. The screeners aren't going out. Like I think that there has to be at least some initial effort mm-hmm. to put a movie in conversation. That many many movies, American or from wherever, just whoever's putting them out just is like that's we're not we're never going to do that there's no point i mean some movies do get fyc campaigns that you wouldn't expect i remember getting an fyc screener for a fast and furious movie for example Mm -hmm. um 
But yeah, something like Godzilla, which is not American and is not trying to be in that conversation because the U.S. distributor doesn't really care about that. That's yeah, that would take a, a kind of Herculean effort. The the classic example of the Academy not doing this well enough is Parasite, you know, which won SAG Ensemble yes. without any yes, of the actors correct. nominated there, which won the Oscar for Best Picture without any of the actors nominated there. And with several performances in that movie that were talked about a ton, Sang Kang-ho was, you know, somebody that had a real narrative to get in, and it just didn't go anywhere. I mean, it did not materialize. And... Yeah. I feel like it has to change eventually. We have gotten to the point where, and this is a really low bar, but like Penelope Cruz can miss Critics' Choice Golden Globe for Parallel Mothers, and we can believe that the internationally, you know, international bent of the Academy will still get her through. I feel that way about Sandra Huller this year, just given her space, the space she's occupying on the global movie stage. But beyond that, I think that's where it gets interesting and where it gets more complicated. Like even a Juliette Binoche is a is an example of when does something like that happen? When instead of a Brian Tyree Henry, is it a Juliette Binoche? Is it a Leone Benesh for the Teachers Lounge, who's so good? Uh, and that's a movie that's playing really well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, the Golden Globes did it uh, for Fallen Leaves for Alma Poisti, um, which was a big surprise, and that mm-hmm. reflected the Globes getting actually more international as opposed to. <laughs> To what they were when they had foreign in their name, so I, I think it, mm. I think it will change. I think that because we have reached a certain level uh, of you know expecting one or two people to get in, um, it's reasonable to assume that in another few years some of those names can start popping up a bit more regularly. I don't think we're there yet. Um, I'm quite confident we're not there yet. We're like even Julia Binoche getting in for a strong international contender is like would be a delightful long shot surprise. But it is yeah. moving. It is definitely moving. God, you bringing up Parasite really like brought me flashbacks of how frustrating it was. It was that, horrible. Like people didn't even know their names, mm-hmm. you know. And I was like, well, obviously, there's no mm-hmm. chance for individual acting nominations. If you know, especially I think with these stars from Asia, there there still needs to be more effort to sort of learn their names and pronounce. Like it's it's a longer road than I. Than, than I wish it was. Well, and know, that's the other know. point is that there's a big difference between a European actor campaign and mm-hmm. an Asian actor campaign or a Latin American actor campaign yeah. for that matter. It's, you know, when we say international, it, it does vary by continent as well. Yeah. But it also does feel like Parasite, that that wouldn't happen again, that a film could not be as strong as Parasite and not get a Best Picture nomination. Like it it winning, or sorry, not get an acting nomination. Like Parasite's win changed that formula a little bit. I maybe that's overly optimistic, but it feels that way to me. I hope so. I mean, especially when you look at Parasite, where it's like, oh, there could have been an actor in all four categories. Oh yeah, you know, and uh, like a like a sort of everything everywhere kind of thing. Yeah, Um, I think one small thing that someone like myself can do with a you know whatever tiny little reach that I have or we have is like when I see a good performance at Cannes or something is to talk Mm -hmm. about it like it is a legitimate contender Mm -hmm. and not just sort of say, ah, that'll never happen. And so let me focus on the the more recognizable people. I don't think that really moves the needle very much at all. But like, if that was done collectively, if we see a movie like Parasite at Cannes, and, you know, obviously Bong Joon-ho, amazing effort, but to like single out the actors by name, you know, like, like get those conversations started. um, I think that could help in whatever tiny way uh, advance that forward. I think that's a yeah, great point. Yeah, because you think about even this 
listener mentioning Godzilla Minus One, you know, that is a film similarly that we don't have on our radar because it is not being promoted. And and I think those are the kind of shout outs you know, we could do earlier in the season as well. Yeah, I mean, I remember last year, I think it was, um, we did a great a best performances list, and I put two actresses from uh, Hamaguchi's, or no, it was two years ago. It and was fantasy. Uh, Wheel of Fortune, Fate, and Fantasy. Um, two actresses from one of the the three stories in that movie, like, on the list. And, like, lo and behold, lots of Twitter and uh, Instagram users from Japan were, like, posting it. And it's like, so people are paying attention. It's just yeah. that, like, the attention mm-hmm. is going one way and not the other. And I think that, like, that narrative needs to change kind of holistically across the entire industry, including, you know, our end of things. Yeah. Okay, we'll go to a, a very quick and simple one before getting into some of these media questions. Again, amazing questions. Um, ben asks, which Golden Globe acting nominee do you want to see win most based solely on their potential speech? I can start with the obvious one, which is Jennifer Lawrence for No Hard Feelings. Oh, no, that's mine, Katie. <laughs> Maybe we can all agree with. I mean, it, it, she is just kind of like such a, an icon in the expectant, acceptance speech genre already. Uh, and we're all so happy to have her back there. Um. So... One of my great globe globe speech memories was Isabella Pair winning for Elle because she was overcome and delighted. The, you know, one of the most highly regarded actresses in the world could not have been more emotional to win a Golden Globe. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm hoping that Sandra Huller, if she wins for Anatomy of Fall, will similarly express a kind of shocking feeling of uh, being overcome, uh, overcome, and. Uh, and really taken with the experience of winning a globe. I'd love to see that. Um, because she has history giving interesting speeches at the Golden Globes, I want a 40-minute acceptance speech from Jodie Foster. <laughs> yeah, that's I want a, a PowerPoint presentation. I want one. I want her to be like, okay, so in 1986, I realized I like girls. Like, I want, like, the whole thing. Um, that would be fabulous. That could absolutely happen. Um, has anyone been following the Rosamund Pike Saltburn press tour? By the way, <laughs> she's I read saying, one interview that was great. Yeah, yeah, she's 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 been interesting. So I don't know what that would sound like, but I'd be interested in it. Uh, I don't know what would happen to make Timothy Chalamet beat Jeffrey Wright and Paul Giamatti in a male actor in a musical or comedy, but I would love to watch that speech. If anyone is a Golden Globe voter and listening. Okay, moving on to your questions. This one's from Melinda, which I also find fascinating. Uh, Can you talk about how the award season has changed now that most people are seeing nominated films at home? I live in rural Vermont and had to wait until the snow was melting to see Call Me By Your Name. Now I expect to see and forget most everything by Christmas. Um, I love the Call Me By Your Name example because we spent so much time complaining about that on this podcast. (laughs) Richard, you and I were Mm -hmm. here then um, and how long it took to see that. But the idea of seeing and forgetting everything by Christmas is interesting to me because I feel like a lot of the thought process is like, oh, well, Holdovers was on VOD really soon uh, after its theatrical release, but that gives people more of a chance to see it and be in the conversation. But is there is there a downside to that, that maybe the studios aren't taking into account? You know, I, I've had a bunch of conversations about May-December now that it's on Netflix, and the people who are seeing it at home still really like the movie, but I do think that is a movie that is missing something because not as not as many people are seeing it as in, in the theater. Um, you know, just with the tone of that film and the way you surprise, laugh, and things like that. I just think it's such a, you know, I had such a wonderful theatrical experience with it in Cannes, and and it has made me think about this sort of question about does your experience 
in the theaters stick with you longer than, you know, when you're at home and also on your phone and doing your laundry at the same time as watching a movie. So mm. um, I, this, this question has been a little heavy on my, my mind as well. But so the question is, does it hurt the chances of the films we're seeing at home? But a lot of voters, I think, see these films at home be just because of the nature of the way this process works with the Academy screening site, yeah. um, mm-hmm. you know, for the last couple of years anyway, or screeners. You know, we all had that huge pile of screeners. So I'm not sure that has changed so much for the voters in the last couple of years. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, last year, if you look at like a Brian Tyree Henry or an Adarmus who were on streaming movies that came out, were pretty, you know, came and went um, but they still made it through. Um, and I think that is to exactly what Rebecca is saying, that the Academy members watch things on their own time in their own way. And that that has been true no matter how these dis- distribution models have changed. Um, you know, I, I think that with a movie like May, December, you can maybe see what happens when it doesn't fade immediately and it actually does stick around and, you know, provoke interesting conversations. I would say that's probably a there's there's maybe something to be gained when it doesn't happen, but I don't know that there's something to be lost when, as happens with many of these films, they just sort of have their moment when they're released, and then it is up to the campaign to keep them in voters' minds for nominations and wins. And uh, I don't know that, that equation has changed that much. Yeah, because it's not you know unlike civilians, not non academy members, uh, it's not a matter of access. Between Thanksgiving and mm. voting time, if an Academy member wants to see a movie, they can see that movie. Uh, it's just a matter mm-hmm. of choosing when to see it and finding the time for it. And maybe there is some something psychological happening where there's a recency bias, so that the last thing I saw is, for, is top of mind. So I'm going to vote for that more heavily than if I had watched it back in October or whatever. But I don't, yeah, I don't really think we have a metric to determine that. I think that to kind of to Rebecca's point about people watching May December at home. The movies do lose a little specialness, sure, but that's not entirely a new thing. I mean, screeners have been co- going out for a long time. I mean, they used to be in VHS, right? Like, Yeah, it's, it's gotten better, yeah, if anything. Yeah. <laughs> so we are not going to even be able to get to all of your great questions, which is, again, a testament to how much we love and appreciate you. And if you had one you didn't ask, you can email littlegoldmen at vf.com. But I did want to put in one last one um, from Jordan because I kind of wondered this as well. Um, After watching Beyonce's Renaissance film, I was struck in particular by the editing, both pacing as well as piecing together her whole tour into a montage. Why is this not in the conversation for editing awards? Is it not eligible or is it music film bias or I guess both? I believe it's eligible. Concert films are eligible. So Eras and Renaissance are both eligible. But I do think there is a concert movie thing in the Mm -hmm. Oscars where they just get overlooked even when they're gigantic hits like Era and a little bit less so Renaissance. Um, And I I wonder if there's anything that could ever change that. It's like the final barrier that has not been broken. (laughs) (laughs) International films are welcome, but music docs, no thanks. Well, in document, I still know documentaries ever been nominated for Best Picture, most yeah, of the concert true. films. That's so, true. like, there's that as well. I think it's a long road for a film like that, even with Beyonce's name in the title. <laughs> yeah, I wonder if it's that, like, the editing in these films is not narrative exactly. I'm sure they would say there's narrative to them, and of course there is, but it's not quite the same as, like, cutting together, like, comedy beats or a storytelling or something like that. Um, it is different, but it is, you know, it's so noticeable in something like a concert film. And you would think maybe like a broader academy would want to pay attention to that. 
Yeah, you have to imagine the editing branch, the voters of that branch and what they're going to welcome into that group. You know, mm-hmm. is is it for them like this is a concert film? This is not the same as me editing a giant war movie. You know, like the majority of those editors come from, uh, you know, narr- traditional narrative film. And, and I think that's the, what they're going to want to highlight. I think concert films, particularly by two pop stars with the Academy face a just a general, you know, more hurdles uh, than even a regular documentary. But documentaries themselves are really um, underserved by the Academy. Uh, Summer of Soul won a lot of critics awards for editing. It was beautifully done in that regard and should have been considered. And a lot of archival documentaries should be. Um, And it didn't really go anywhere. Uh, So this happens fairly regularly. Um, And I think especially with a movie where there are questions of its eligibility as documentary, uh, it's just even more difficult because it's like, where's where's the uh, the groundswell going to come from um, when that's not even on the table? Yeah. Well, there's always the um, blockbuster award at the Golden Globes or whatever whatever it is that they're <laughs> calling it, where Aerostore at least can get its uh, recognition. So we can look forward to that. That does it for this week's show. That does it for 2023 for us. We'll be back in 2024. There will be way more award shows than any of us are prepared to handle in a very short period of time in early January. So rest up in the meantime. Uh, Find us at Vanity Fair, on social media at BF Awards Insider. I'm out there at Katie Rich and Richard. Rylaws. And David. David Canfield, 97. And Rebecca. Rebecca M. Ford. Our editor and producer is Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for the best description of Richard at age 19 after seeing Itu Mama Tambien goes to Rebecca Ford. I have Gael Garcia Bernal on the mind right now. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new uh, translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Really excited to see... Whether I can read the Iliad again, whether I'm that literate, I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. (laughs) He can't stop. I mean, and and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. (laughs) (laughs) We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. (laughs) 